listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project is to talk with authors, scientists, artists, historians, fisher poets, and a colorful cast of characters who are both knowledgeable and passionate about Alaska. Storytelling has always been key to how we connect as humans, piquing our curiosity and deepening our understanding. Our podcasts are unhurried, so we invite you to settle in and explore with us some of the richness that makes Alaska such a special place. Without further ado, let's begin. You know, these are such superlative, remarkable, and unfathomed beings that it requires the entire human brain trust to get at their true natures. That was Dr. Fred Sharp, whale researcher, founding member of the Alaska Whale Foundation, and a gifted and passionate bioregional scientist. Our conversation today is a follow-up with Fred to the Alaska Story Project podcast number 10 on whale characteristics, vocalizations, and aspects of whale intelligence. There's so much more to learn and discover about whales. So without delay, let's begin. Welcome, Fred. Hey, it's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you. So if we were mariners, this is a fairly delightful and sometimes common sound when we're amongst the whales. Whales breathing, whales spouting, but there's so much more to it, Fred. What, from your vantage point, what's going on there? Well, it's lovely to hear that large group uh, of whales out foraging together. And, you know, th these animals have explosive breath to oxygenize their blood and then dive back down. And they can be down anywhere from, you know, 5 to 10, 15, 20 minutes on the breeding downs. They can be down as much as 40 minutes. And when they make it back to the surface, they have these explosive breaths that um, really can tell us a lot about what's happening underneath the water. They can provide cues, obviously, about the whale's position, the type of feeding tactics, and their emotional state. And, you know, just day in, day out, when we're looking for the animals, we... Um, you look for these spouts on clear, calm days. It's like you can even see these spouts uh, erupting from beyond the curve of the earth when they're backlit. And it, it's just so exciting to see these clustered spouts. You know, these big groups, these thunder puppers, it's these, these, these clustered spouts tell us we've got a big social pod and the, uh, you know, especially along the hot springs coast up and down Chatham Strait when these blows are backlit against the dark shore of Baranoff Island, it's super beautiful. And on sunny days, it's we get these rainbows sparkling, sparkling in the spouts. And um, and you know, it's always this, you know, when we're searching for the whales, it's like you look for these misty apparitions that fade over a few moments. Because you know, we, we see lots of things along the shorelines. You see silvery snags, you see the mists from waterfalls or hot springs and if, if the genie fades, that means you've got a whale, right? That means that, uh, and you, you want to look for these first spouts because 
that gives you a search template when we're scanning the waters with our binoculars. And um, on nice calm days, we can actually run right up the center of Chatham Strait and we can get the interns glassing both shorelines looking for the spouts. And, uh, you know, it's wild in, in early autumn in Frederick Sound. Uh, you Sometimes you can get, you know, 15, 20 dozens, you know, if not more than 100 whales all foraging in close proximity. And it's it's like you get this fog on the surface of the water. It's, it's uh, from all their spouts. It's like this whale fog. It's really beautiful. And, mm-hmm. of course, spouts have given rise to the sea monster myths with these apparitions. And there's, you know, there's sulfurous extremophiles that are actually are with their breath. And, um and here's a little quote from Yola's South American journals. And the breath of the whale is frequently attended with such an insupportable smell that it brings a disorder to the brain. <laughs> well, those of us that have been close enough to a whale exhalation, we're aware of that. And it makes me think that uh, whales don't naturally floss their baleen, do they? <laughs> that's right. That's right. They don't. Uh, it's funny because sometimes we'll actually see with the baleen. Uh, Jan Straley noted this that the old squaws uh, they love to forage with what she calls baleen cheese. Uh, sometimes when the whales are deep diving on krill, they'll come up and apparently when they're back flushing to krill to to fill to flush out the krill from the baleen, you'll see this orange cheesy stuff at the surface that the old squaw just love. And so yes, it can it can definitely become a little odiferous. Sometimes you can even tell what they're eating, um, you know, whether it's a fishy or more of a sort of a crabby smell, whether on the crustaceans prey. And not all of them are that um, are that odiferous. Some of them even have a you know a pleasant smell, like like the cottonwoods in late spring. <laughs> uh, I'll take your word for it, Fred. But here's a here's a curiosity that I know many of us have had. So we have a human sense of a very deep breath, an inhalation, and an exhalation. And what's the comparison with the volume with a whale's inhalation and exhalation? And actually, when when you encounter them on the surface, it's an explosive exhalation followed by an intense inhalation. What kind of volume of air are we talking about? Well, that's a great question and one that we ponder frequently. Because we're interested in the whales using their bubble tools to create these effervescent nets to corral the prey, we're always curious, you know, how much volume do these whales have? And you see various estimates in the literature that can be based on estimates from their anaerobic condition and energetic output. Um, you know, it's uh, I like to use the phone booth. That's a convenient measure, uh, up to like 15, 20 phone booths of air for an a, a adult humpback whale that's many hundreds of uh, gallons and multiple multiple cubic meters that they can inhale at the surface before they dive. And um, yeah, when they come up to the surface, you um, you can get an appreciation for the tremendous volume because they're atomizing these fine droplets into the air that are readily visible for, um, you know, for many miles. And of course, the um, when the whales are really energetically excited, the spouts become much louder and are obviously moving a much larger volume of air through their lungs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Well, and then a, another related question is, what have you noticed about their cycles? Uh, a, a whale on the surface, maybe a shallow dive, a breath, another shallow dive, a breath, 
maybe three or four, and then do they take a big breath and then make a deep dive? How does, what have you noticed? How does that work? Well, some seminal studies were done right here in Frederick Sound by uh, William Dolphin back in the 1980s. And he was interested in just sort of examining are whales optimal foragers and how deep are they diving for their prey and what information can we glean by looking at the surface? And, you know, he found that uh, when the whales are just taking a single blow, they're usually feeding at the surface or just underneath the surface. But it's when they're taking these multiple blows, sometimes as many as eight to 10 respirations at the surface and logging there for a few minutes before they dive, that's usually a pretty good sign that they're going down quite deep to, uh, to apprehend their prey. Uh, using a sonar, Bill was able to show that, you know, th- these these animals, they're optimal foragers. You know, they, they have to make good hunting decisions. And you, you want to, you know, not have any unnecessary costs when you're hunting. Because the whole idea is, is like, if you make good hunting decisions and you forage better in the summer, you develop a deeper, larger, deeper blubber layer. And that means you can maximize your time in Maui and hopefully leave more offspring. Mm-hmm. So it's important to them to, that they, they hunt They hunt appropriately, and they hunt well from the hundreds of dives they'll make during the summer. And um, typically, he found that the whales will descend to the nearest, closest patch to forage on. What's that range of deep diving? How deep might they go, and what might they be hunting down there? Well, uh, some of Jan Straley's work, she's noted that when the whales are foraging in Prince William Sound or on some of the wintering herring schools off of Sitka, it appears that they can easily make it down to over a thousand feet to apprehend these wintering herring schools. When we've deployed critter cams on bubble netting pods of whales, they usually dive around, you know, 150 to 200 feet per dive, just enough to get down underneath the herring schools, which in the daytime tend to school below the thermocline. And little darker layers, they're say, be 60 to 150 feet is typical for herring. At, in the evening, the herring schools spread and come back up towards the surface. And so the whales, oftentimes, their respirations are just singly, quick at quick dive down um, singly. What we have noticed is that the underneath the water, the it can be quite, you know, remarkable variation in the clarity of the water, what these whales are diving down through in the winter times. I mean, our waters are prismatic without the primary uh, primary biological productivity. Uh, we get it's our waters almost as uh, as uh, prismatic as as Hawaiian waters. Of course, we don't have necessarily the light penetration in winter, but it's beautifully clear waters. And even in the summertime, we've noticed with the critter cam on, as soon as the whales dive, if they they once they dive down below that turbid surface freshwater layer, they'll oftentimes get into much clearer water down below. And we even had one whale that had a critter cam on, uh, with suction cupped. Uh, right behind the blowhole and we could look forward and we could see a barnacle on the blowhole and we could still see light from that barnacle when on some of their maximum dives uh, down to 300 feet, we could still get a glint off that barnacle. So um, yeah, it's um, very interesting when these dives, whales dive and what the world looks like down at their ocean depths. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> we terrestrial creatures can but imagine what's going on at depth with a little help from oceanographers. Another question related to diving are issues around depth and pressure. Certainly, human scuba divers have to be very aware and careful about 
uh, depth and dive times. How have whales adapted for their deep diving? Yeah, well, they that's the paradigm in evolution is that whatever challenges that you encounter in your environment on a regular basis, you developed adaptations to. And so the whales, when they're diving down to these tremendous depths, you know, sperm whales, it's thought can go, even go down a couple of miles. And some of the uh, bottlenose whales, uh, champion divers, so are elephant seals. And they have ways they have, you know, special um, additional um, structuring and layering of their alveoli to prevent compression. Uh, the same thing with their eyes to prevent over compression at these great depths. They um, have much more myoglobin rich blood so that they can uh, oxygenate their blood at the surface during the surface respiration interval and have lots of oxygen when they head down. Another really cool adaptation that mysticete whales have is that when they're vocalizing underwater, they don't emit any bubbles. When we talk and sing and ex, uh, we, we release air to across our vibrating vocal folds or vocal cords. And um, those, that's not, whales don't do that. They, they're able to recirculate their air. They have it's basically a sort of like a, a bagpiper sac. It's called a laryngeal sac. It's a very muscular sac that shunts air back and forth to the lungs and across their vibrating membrane. And so they have lots of um, adaptations for surviving these tremendous pressures. Again, humpbacks, often the, how deep they can go and how deep they do go are kind of different things. You know, down to a thousand feet is probably what we see maximum here in Southeast Alaska. And I don't know why they don't go deeper, whether it's pressure related or they're just scared of the dark. <laughs> right, Roger that. Well, uh, more curiosities. Fred, do whales sleep? And if so, how do they sleep? We know a lot about how toothed whales or the adonisites sleep because we can uh, conduct a whole variety of studies on them in a captive or uh, laboratory environments or aquariums where we can um, you know, watch them behaviorally when they're sleeping. We can attach various uh, um, EKG monitors to their, their head to monitor their brainwave. And one of the fascinating things that's been discovered was it appears that the toothed whales, the dolphins and porpoises, they go into what's called unihemispheric sleep. And that allows them to keep uh, their um, one eye open and sleep the opposite, and have the opposite side of the brain is active, um, while the near side of the brain is actually asleep. And it's thought to be an amazing adaptation, obviously, because of the concern about drowning. Uh, you want to maintain some level of vigilance. You want to maintain the eye on your, on your pod mates and scan for predators or any other potential threats for stranding. So sleeping one side of the brain at a time is an amazing adaptation for the toothed whales. Now, because the mysticetes, because they're obviously not amenable to aquarium studies, laboratory studies, we're really not sure how you know, what the exact brain mechanisms are for sleeping in mysticete whales. But of course, anyone who's traversed our waters on through Southeast Alaska, occasionally you come across whales that, especially during midday, when the prey layer, prey layers tend to be photonegative, both krill and fish. And so during the bright, sunny days, the prey layer drops down several hundred feet. And it gets back to this whole thing about whales being optimizers, being, you know, commuters, they're optimal foragers. And if the prey just gets too deep, it's just like, you're expending a lot more energy with your commuting costs than you would when the prey is near the surface. So they'll kind of knock off and take a siesta. It's really, it's really cool in late summer. You can find, sometimes you'll see dozens of whales logging. They're just passed out asleep at the surface. 
and they take come, they'll come up and take a really deep breath every two or three minutes, take one long breath and sink back down below the surface. And it's, uh, it's really endearing. It's a, mm. it's a little bit uh, disconcerting because that's a time it's thought they may be more subjected to uh, vessel strikes. Um, if you don't have mm. a, a vigilant presence in the wheelhouse, calves are at greater risk because they have to come up more frequently to breathe than the the adults. And, uh, but it's wild because you really start to go a little bit of their personality. Some of them snore more. They have a funny, you, know, you can actually tell individuals occasionally by, by the way they sleep. Hmm. But, uh, and you know, the humpbacks are really cool because, you know, most of the time you don't see them sleeping like this very often. Uh, a lot of times it just seems like if they've been foraging and, uh, they're doing pretty good, but then the, the tide turns and there's a change in the, the prey availability. You oftentimes you, you'll just see them knock off from foraging and they'll just slow way down. They'll take kind of longer traveling dives and they'll just sort of, they always seem to know where they want to go. Hmm. And even though they, um, and they, and they can seem to recoup a lot of their, um, oxygen debt and, you know, metabolite debt from active foraging by just slowing down. But a lot of times they, they won't, they won't stop and sleep, but they'll just set a really slow course for where they think their next meal might be. Hmm. You'll see them sort of like slow down and kind of head across from Angoon over towards Morris Reef and just moving about a half knot and the, the pod spreads out and they still sort of maintaining contact, but just slowly moving. And an hour or two later, when they make it across the other shore, they aggregate back up and, and get busy. <laughs> well, that's pretty wild. So, We've got a storm happening, and uh, the seas are rough. And what's it like for breathing under stormy, rough seas conditions? And uh, a second question along those lines is: Do they ever mess up and uh, you know get a a lungful of water, or uh, do they cough? You know how on that? I know it's it's crazy to think about because um, yeah, I've had the good fortune with. My research team, most of our time is spent in the inland protected waters of Southeast Alaska. And you don't see me out there in those conditions. <laughs> it, uh, but, you know, they do have some adaptations. Um, they obviously can tell when it's um, the winds are picking up. And they you know, when they come up to the surface, they can be a little bit more emphatic. When they rise up towards the surface, they can bring their heads up a little bit more out of the water. And they have on the leading edge of the blowhole what we call the splash guard. In fact, the blowhole is it's almost like a, a proboscis. It's almost like an extending trunk. They can project it above the surface several feet, really. Their whole kind of top of their head rises up. That splash guard allows them to get above the, the highly turbulent, washed uh, area right at the surface and gulp for a breath. But, you know, I, it's funny. I do worry about the calves when they... It's a long way. It's a big ocean between here and Hawaii. And when they're on their, you know, couple months, you know, even sometimes just less than a month or less than two months old, they push out across the Grand Pacific and they're going to encounter all kinds of weather out there that they have to deal with. But, you know, it's part of the reason of being highly efficient. When they need to capture a breath in tempestuous ocean conditions, both the the spout, the exhalation and the, inha the inhale can be accomplished very rapidly. And so they... Um, seem to do all right out there in those uh, rough sea conditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I remember something that to this day sticks in my imagination, and it, it's an account from Roger Payne when he was down in the roaring 40s off uh, a little ways above Antarctica in a, you know, hellacious gale. You know, he spoke of 
70, 80 knots of wind and 30 foot seas. And not content to be hunkered down in the ship, he went out uh, just to experience the storm. And to his amazement, he saw, and I believe they were humpbacks, crashing through the peak of a wave and breathing in midair before they dove back into the next wave and breathing in that fashion in probably 30-foot seas. Wow. Wow. Yeah, good old Roger. You know, I've had the good fortune to be on a couple of missions with him, and he loves to go out in heavy seas. <laughs> He's like, we got to find the whales out in these conditions. And uh, just amazing. I love Roger. He was on my graduate committee and uh, one of the kindest uh, humanitarians you'll ever meet. And he's such a model for for research scientists in the way that he uh, made all these amazing discoveries over his career. But then, you know, for the last half of his career, he's just become an ardent conservationist for the oceans hmm. through his work with the Ocean Alliance and, and Ian Kerr. And uh, it's really impressive model for all scientists to realize that we have to always up our game to protect the the oceans that sustain us and provide our remarkable data sets. Yeah, well, right on. And, you know, I, I hear the uh, gratitude in your voice for having such amazing mentors, and uh, that's, that's good fortune. So, Fred, uh, more curiosity about the diving of whales, maybe the uh, behavior and physiology of their dives. Two types of feeding that we're aware of in around the whales in Southeast Alaska. One is lunge feeding. And then say say a bit about that, but then what I'm also fascinated with is the cooperative feeding, bubble net feeding. Well, lunge feeding is, is a remarkable mechanism for entrapping prey in the water and you know, of course, we know a lot about filter feeders, you know, um, uh, clams, siphonics is a form of filter feeding. You know, flamingos use the lamellae on their bills and so do mallards. And uh, baleen whales are re- remarkable because, you know, they're, they're selective, discontinuous samplers of the ocean environment. And they have these tremendously large mouths. And each time they feed, they accelerate and increase their speed and open their giant maws and that allows them to expand that large pleated bag on their tummies called the buccal cavity. And with that, they can essentially, you know, wrap their entire mouth around a fish school. They're not to content to catch just one prey organism, but they try to catch the entire school or shoal per gulp. And then they distend this, this buccal cavity, this pleated elastic, like, it's kind of like the, uh, the throat of a pelican or the the throat of a cormorant, this big elastic throat pouch that um, allows them to engulf large amounts of prey-laden water, which then they close their mouth, except for a little slit, and then um, forcibly expel the water back through their baleen plates and then retain the prey on the inside of their mouth, which they um, swallow whole, and they swallow their victims whole. And it's really funny because my um, my spell checker always tries to um, change mystici to masticate and that's one thing that the whales definitely don't do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Roger that. Roger that. Okay, so very interesting. I think many of us uh, mariners in Southeast have been around uh, lunge feeding whales. Many lucky mariners 
have been able to see bubble net feeding. Say a bit more about humpbacks and bubble net feeding. You know, bubble net feeding is really one of my favorite uh, behaviors to study in that you have this large, you know, group of individuals, sometimes as many as two dozen whales that get together. You know, our average pod size is about 10 whales, but occasionally you'll get two pods working together, almost like companion galaxies that will occasionally join into one of these super lunges that can be tremendous. Um, and the society of these bubble netting teams is, is really exciting. From what we can deduce through years of photo identification, they appear to be comprised of groups that are are non kin. They're just they're, they're just running buddies, right? They um, they get together, they form these friendships or economic bonds that uh, for what we call the core community. There's probably about um, you know three dozen whales that we see regularly, primarily in Chatham Strait. That these groups tend to reform every year, and oftentimes it's the same whales. And these animals, you know, they're they're not they're not kin. They don't appear to be next order kin or family groups. That's an that's an awesome, very human-like trait for for uh, organisms or individuals to get together, and um, when they're diving and hunting together, they you know, it appears that one whale sort of is the primary bubble blower. They'll dive down and appear to select out the prey. Bubble nets can range from a variety of depths, is down to you know forty, fifty, sixty, and even well over hundred feet. One individual is percolating the air out of the blowhole, which uh, effervesces and rises in telescopes to form this amazing type corral. Other individuals in the pod, they appear to specialize, specialize in these tasks that they appear to maintain over summers and even across, you know, decades and perhaps even lifetimes. They appear to be the primary vocalizers, which use these sounds to uh, frighten and chase the prey up into the bubble net. And it's a remarkably well choreographed feeding activity. And it's just, it's like coming home every summer, right? You see the same group of whales working together. And uh, yeah, it's really endearing. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And I might add for the listening audience that uh, to get a really incredibly vivid visualization of bubble net feeding, the Alaska Whale Foundation's website has some drone footage right above bubble net feeders. And it's it's awe-inspiring. Not only is it beautiful, the circle of the bubble net, but then as these creatures come up in their feeding habits, it's it's really quite incredible and so highly recommended at the Alaska Whale Foundation website. Yeah, check it out. It's uh, these drones. Yeah, they're, they're fabulous tools because they allow us to peer down into the bubble net and we can get a pretty good idea of how the whales are spaced and what individuals, how they're maintaining spatial consistency within the pod as they move between groups. And most importantly, it gives us an opportunity to understand how much prey the whales are engulfing on each lunge. And of course, this is very important so that we have some idea of the amount of biomass that the animals are extracting from the ocean so we can better set our own quotas so that there's enough prey to go around. And but also just by seeing who's getting what prey resources when they hunt and forage, it allows us to learn a lot about their social structure because usually you assume that um, those individuals within the pod who are getting the most usually have more privileged positions. And so um, we're excited to, uh, to with the drones, to see if we can get a better appreciation for um, how the spoils of the hunt are divided between the pod mates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, so Fred, I know that one of the very important uh, undertakings with your work, along with the Alaska Whale Foundation, is basically coming to the rescue of whales that have been entangled in all kinds of stuff, usually fishing gear. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that or how disentanglement techniques come about, and say a bit more about disentangling whales. Well, it's a it's a real honor to be able to go into service to these animals and also our our fishing communities. Uh, it's really unfortunate when you know animals do become entangled. Nobody wants that, you know, especially the fishermen. It, it's problematic for them in that it uh, obviously can damage their gear. And with these shorter openings and you have downtime, it can be costly. And and of course, they don't want to hurt the whale. Nobody wants to see that. And so. It's, it's a really an honor to be able to work together, to be trained by NOAA with techniques for releasing whales, and they provide us with a, a cache of tools to um, assist these animals. Every disentanglement is unique, right? The, um, depending on the, you know, the um, condition of the animal and, how, and what the temperament of the animal is, their health condition, you know, the type of gear that the animals get wrapped up in whether or not the whales had a previous experience with disentangling. And so you know, how, we, how we approach the whale is what is our bedside manner of the responders? And we're essentially like, we're like volunteer firemen. There's probably half a dozen response cells with these tool caches centered around Southeast Alaska. There's also response networks up in around Kodiak and Prince William Sound and Dutch Harbor. And um, we have a hotline that we post and, uh, we wait for, for a call to come in, and the first thing we try to do is just, just get more intel. We have, we have uh, wheelhouse cards that we hand out to boaters, and they have a, you know, about, about a series of questions that they ask you know, with, uh, so that the mariner can provide the essential information, their, their location of where they, where they are, a description of the gear on the animal. Ideally, we like to get our network responders on that same day out to the uh, reported uh, whale. So we can, so oftentimes we'll try to get a responder, an advanced responder to get out there very quickly to obtain photographs and try to get some idea, is this a life-threatening event? Does it, is it something that we think we can requ will require intervention? And not every entanglement by any means is life-threatening. Lots of whales are able to self-release over time. If it looks just like a single wrap, say, of a crab pot line over over a flipper, and you know it's just got a small trailing buoy, and it doesn't look like it's twirling, and it looks like the animal can throw it by itself, and it's not life-threatening. You know, we just stand down. We like to know what type of gear it is because in that way we can provide feedback to to industry and to recreational fishers. If there's is there, is there a particular fishery in a particular area that uh, we might be able to work together to come up with solutions to adjust the parameters of the fishery so um, the whales aren't becoming entangled as often. And ideally, you know, big picture, what we want to do is 
is design fishing gear so that these entanglements never occur. And so by, by knowing what type of gear is getting entangled, we can provide feedback to, to industry and to recreational uh, fishermen so that they know, is there something, you know, is there certain colors of line or types of gear that are better that the whales can avoid? The fishers are really good about communicating with each other. If there's a pot of whales moving up the coast through a seine opening or gill netters communicate with each other. And typically it's generally thought that if you maintain tension on the net as the whales are approaching, if they are going to go through it, it uh, prevents it from bagging up. And usually, unfortunately, it, I know it's, it's going to be tough on the gear and the fisher folk when they come through and tear a big hole in the net, but it's way better than having a whale get entangled and wrapped up in the gear and, you know, the, uh, these, these entanglement teams, they started, I guess, almost four decades ago now on the north uh, with John Lean and his colleagues up in the North Atlantic with whales started getting, uh, whales were getting caught in cod traps. And uh, they started going out and assisting fishermen and trying to come up with ways to prevent these. And from there, it's just evolved through the Center of Coastal Studies. They have developed this incredible cache of tools of various types of cutters and uh, Spider Co., they have they have graciously volunteered and developed some really amazing hooked cutter knives. We have grapples that have blades on the inside of, of the hooks. Uh, we use long Kevlar poles. Another technique that we'll use is to attach a telemetry buoy uh, to the animals, and especially if we're, if we're getting out there and it's late in the day or the winds are picking up and we realize it's a life-threatening situation and we know we're not going to be able to finish uh, before we lose our light we will attach a satellite tag to the animal. We usually have that, that is usually programmed to last about two weeks on the animal. And that buys us some time now. We can just go back and we can see where the animal's movement is. We can um, do an assessment of the type of gear, come up with a disentanglement strategy, and just wait for when the whale comes back near one of these disentanglement uh, cells and, and send people out. And we really encourage people to if they see these events to report them it's also really critical that people don't attempt to disentangle animals themselves we've worked very hard to get a responsive uh, network out there so um, individuals can respond to assist with these animals we usually get probably about 20 reports across across the summer of animals somewhere in southeast alaska being entangled and about Five of those were able to actually get a team out on the water, and I would say about um, on three of those were able to have a successful disentanglement. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, question, Fred. Uh, with those disentanglements, those assists on whales that you've been on, do you have a sense that the whales know that you're trying to help them, or how does that go? Mm, yeah, really good question. Um, well, we, um, again, every disentanglement is unique and, uh, some animals are in far tougher shape than others. If they've been in the, uh, the gear for days or weeks or even months, sometimes, I mean, I mean, half the disentanglements that are conducted in Hawaii, approximately half of those are gear that the animals have. It's Alaskan fishing gear that they've drugged down all the way across the, you know, halfway across the Pacific, right? Wow. So we know they can be in there for a long time, and it's, um, oftentimes they can, they can be somewhat emaciated and in poor condition, or they can even lose flippers or flukes as the lines cut through them. And so, um, yeah, it really depends on the whale. A lot of the times we, we find humpbacks are so large and powerful that they, they've broken through the gear, 
and are free swimming. And so um, it's often kind of hard to know what these animals are thinking. You know, we, we never assume that they're going to be um, compliant, but clearly some animals are, right? We'll see them, they'll, they'll circle back around. I've had that happen a couple of times, but uh, it's, you know, it's pretty rare. Uh, we, you know, we, we did have an animal that was entangled two years ago down in uh, Sakar Cove on northern Prince of Wales Islands. We got a call from Scott and his team there at uh, El Capitan Lodge that they there's some uh, buoys right out in front. It was a bunch of series of lines and floats that they use to anchor their docks when they're pulling the docks, uh, putting them apart or setting them back up in the spring. And the whale, a whale had gotten entangled in that very heavy lines, dock lines and buoys. And the, the animal was, uh, it was a real, real feisty individual. So we just stepped down and we just spent a couple hours just monitoring the animal slowly approaching. And it was really interesting. It seemed like it got the, after a few hours, once we kind of get into a rhythm of approaching and doing some cutting and backing off or motoring up with a long Kevlar pole with the uh, hook cutter, which we attach it over a line and we back off and give it a good yank and we cut through the line. It seemed like the whale kind of got the idea and it would actually just gradually, we just kind of motor to the spot. We could actually see the entangled part of its tail coming up towards the surface to uh, hmm. apparently allowing us to make the cut, right? And um, hmm. so, yeah, so it's like, it was, it was wild. The whale almost kind of went into this sort of zen, like it had been extremely feisty, but it just really calmed down and allowed us to go to work. And it's, uh, we were able to get all the gear off. It was quite an honor. And, you know, again, because these, these animals are so massive, humpback whales have extremely um, strong tail stalks and really large flukes for their size. I mean, they're when you when you scale for body size, their flukes are like three times larger than that of a blue whale, and extremely powerful. And so there's just ways to approach. And so that's why again we ask the public to um, to call the hotline one eight seven seven nine two five seven 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 three. That's one eight seven seven nine two five seven 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 three. We also we don't we don't ever get in the water with them. You know, we're specifically trained. Um, we just use. GoPros on pole cams, and now drones are indispensable tool for disentanglements. We like to get lots of intel, find out where the whales are entangled on their body. Does the line go through the mouth, or is it caught in the baleen? Does it wrap any of the flippers? We usually start at the mouth and gradually cut backwards, with the last cuts being in the tailstock. Because once that's free, you know the animals they can often start um, moving around. But um, we always try to avoid getting in the water since we have all these great tools now for peering at these great beings and it's wonderful to go into service for them and boy it's it's always just a real gratifying feeling when we can see one of those animals swim free oh yeah well good on you and all of the various groups and agencies that you're working together with fred is a bit of a segue a, a few questions about the alaska whale foundation Curious about the process. How how do you folks decide what to study, and and uh, how do you design your studies? Any any comments along those lines? Well, for much of our organization's history, um, you know, we we incorporated back in the um, um, you know mid nineties, and uh, we'd been out in the water for you know decades, decade or more before that. But uh, with the mid nineties, we formalized our organization and. Um, our principal investigators, we were all in universities. And a lot of our stuff was, you know, curiosity driven. We were interested in 
characterizing the social structure of these animals and you know, what the, uh, the meaning and function of their vocalizations were and how they work together as a team to hunt the prey and you know, descriptive studies. And, you know, it's really in the, the last decade or so, we've come a lot more conservation oriented in our work and trying to address questions and concerns about stakeholders, about marine conservation. And it was in, in 2016, in response to the blob and the, su- the sudden loss of primary productivity in the North Pacific and the loss of reproductive output of these animals, you know, for a couple of years, humpbacks during the blob, um, productivity dropped to almost zero. Uh, whales were disappearing from traditional areas. We were seeing skinnier whales. Whales were spending a lot more time on the feeding grounds and not making the trips to the Hawaiian waters. And at that time in 2016, NOAA convened a meeting in Honolulu with researchers around the North Pacific to try to get at some of these questions and how can we all work together to synchronize the data acquisition and communication between researchers. And we wanted to know, okay, what are the most pressing research questions and tools that we can utilize to get at these apparently, um, which appeared to be populations that were showing considerable duress. And, um, you know, at that time we realized that there's, there's questions about, you know, abundance and distribution Mm. and standardizing our whale health assessment protocols that um, we now incorporate with our summer research. Hmm. Well, along those lines, the ocean heating, the anomalous ocean heating, the blob, that comes and goes. And right now, is, is there a forecast for this coming summer? And any projections into the future as to how that might go? Are there trend lines or what's the perspective on anomalous ocean heating? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, you know, we had the really big event 2014, 2016, which, you know, which really caught everybody off guard, right? It's like, this is not your classic El Nino event, which you know, sloshes across the equatorial waters and then gets pushed up the you know, through Central America and up the coast and and then arrives in our shores. Um, These are, you know, sort of oscillating, relatively, you know, long-term cyclical events that we have some predictive power on. But these these heatings that come much more from local heating from these high-pressure cells, a little harder to predict. I know that there was, you know, last fall, there was concern that um, we were entering another phase. In fact, it was uh, even named the new blob, the North Pacific Marine Heat Wave, uh, NEP-19, that was starting to develop and hmm. through the fall. But this winter, we've gotten you know some pretty good storms coming through. It appears to have churned up that um, much of that surface layer. And now temperatures appear to be pretty normal through much of, uh, much of the North Pacific. Uh, you know, Southeast Alaska, we've got temperatures hovering around the mid to upper 40s, which is normal for this time of year. And, uh, oh, it does appear, though, that there's still some warmth down at depth that hasn't been completely churned up. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so if we do get some um, high-pressure cells, that could, that could turn around pretty quickly. But I just was looking at some of the uh, cliff masses um, weather forecasts for the next 45 days, and it sounds like uh, conditions are expected to be windier and cooler mm-hmm. than normal, uh, which is good for churning up and keeping the... Uh, North uh, Pacific, nice and cold. Mm-hmm. But man, it sure is nice to get the albacore when we get those warm water events, huh? <laughs> there's a there's a segment of the population uh, 
amongst creatures that uh, do benefit and like such things. That's right. Well, Fred, as a a bit of a, a coda, here's a question for you. What surprises you still about these creatures, these humpback whales? Wow. Yeah, it's... um. That's the amazing thing about these beings. They, they always keep you guessing. And, um, you know, I work with this um, team of, of signal detection specialists at, the, um, at SETI, the, the uh, Search Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, of course, they're interested in parsing deep space signals. And uh, what, what's wild is that we, um, you know, when we look at the song and we look at these sequences of social sounds, we're having a really hard time finding any consistent pattern in the way that they wield these signals. You know, of course, of course, you and I are speaking right now. We have a very agreed upon set of rules, how we map our grammar onto a sound wave. And then we can, you know, um, parse meaning out of this data, acoustic data stream. And, and once you, you, know, you plug that into um, a complexity monitor, it's like you, you can just see all kinds of, of rules that we have when we speak. Mm-hmm. The, um, the U follows the Q and... Um, we have very specific words, and we we agreed upon rules so that we can communicate. Where with these whales, they just they just they're always the sequence of signals that they produce are constantly evolving. And uh, some of the work that Rebecca Rebecca's Dunlop group have done in the Southern Oceans off of Australia, they examined over a hundred groups of whales uh, of pods that were migrating, and when they joined each other, you know. The expectation was you're going to find a hello or a greeting or some standard signal when you have um, two groups of animals approaching each other. And they, they monitored over 100 of these joining events. And every time they had a different sequence of social sounds. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's things like that, that we realize that, you know, we're still a long ways from understanding how these animals communicate. And um, there's just been some really um, interesting stuff looking at... Um, their feeding mechanism. You know, they have that lamppost size organ that you, when you see when they lunge, you look into the mouth and you see that gigantic pink slab on the top of the roof of their mouth. That, you know, turns out to be a cooling organ that they are able to shunt. Uh, it's a very, very elastic type tissue. In fact, it's very similar to human erectile tissue and that it can really quickly uh, engorge with blood. And that allows them to get blood to uh, access the cold water in their mouth during engulfment. So, all these really cool mechanisms that whales have that's um that's there we're just discovering and there's still a ton we don't know about you know these surprises only recently for the first time a whale a female whale in maui was actually observed giving birth hmm. Hmm. and uh so that was a really wonderful surprise to see and it's, it's, it was fun it's wild um mating and birthing in these animals um kind of really important things to life they're they're some of the best kept secrets that they keep close to their chest. And so that's why I love working on these animals. Lots of surprises yet to be discovered. Yes. Well, isn't it interesting that they're modest as well? (laughs) Yeah. Darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. Well, Fred, thank you so much for helping the listeners who are curious about these remarkable creatures understand and imagine into a little bit more about their nature. And for any listener that wants to find out more about you and your work, what's, uh, what's the best contact mode? Uh, they can reach me at F sharp, F 
S-H-A-R-P-E, F-Sharp, at alaskawhalefoundation.org. That's F-Sharp, at alaskawhalefoundation.org. And I, I love to hear I love to hear from folks. Um, you know, these are such um, superlative, remarkable, and unfathomed beings that it requires the entire human brain trust to get at their true nature. So, uh, yeah, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Oh, very good. And a gracious invitation. Righteous, Dan, as always, a great pleasure. And a sincere thank you for listening to another Alaska Story Project podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the guests and the stories we have to offer. We invite you to rate and review the Alaska Story Project on Apple Podcasts or with your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks for all. Be safe. Be well. <laughs>